0: everyone. Welcome to an all-new season of the My Nights Are Booked podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Beth Pollock, and I am so excited about this new season. We had a, an incredible first season with amazing interviews with authors and actors and friends of the podcast, and we talked about everything from romance novels to contemporary novels to TV shows and passion flicks and all kinds of stuff. I mean, there really was no end to what we talked about on the podcast in the first season. And I'm thrilled to announce that you can expect the very same thing in season two. And uh, if anything, it's going to be even bigger than it was in season one. And uh, we'll be kicking off the podcast with, uh, with an amazing interview that I did with author Barbara Borland, who just wrote a book called The Force of Such Beauty it's out now. And, um, this book is something that, uh, I can't wait to talk to you about. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very, very special book before we jump into it though. I just kind of want to do some housekeeping we've done. There's been a lot. It's, it's been a huge, uh, I know it's been a while since the last podcast and I apologize for that, but I've been busy in the best of ways. Um, I, I know a lot of, you know, that I, I, left my job at fancited in November of last year and I used that time uh, <laughs> I used my time wisely. I actually wrote a book and finished it uh, about a month or two ago, a little over a month ago. So I have a book that's going to be coming out and it's uh, I've got a team of beta readers looking at it right now so I'm really excited about that uh, and I can't wait to talk with you about it. I haven't told anyone. Um, outside of my little circle, uh, I haven't shared the title or the cover, or even the blurb of what it's about. And um, I have all of those things, and I can't wait to share them with you. I'm absolutely in love with the cover of my book, and uh, can't wait to share that. Um, we have so much passion flick stuff going on that it's it's insane. We're I'm I'm actually recording this. It's it's uh, July thirty first right now. The last, the final hours of Christmas in July, which you all know, I love more than anything. I love my Christmas, and um, I love the. I I just love the season. So just the fact that it's still Christmas in July makes me absurdly happy. I'm also coming off of San Diego Comic Con, which I attended last week for my new job, and uh, that's what I was getting at. So after I wrote the wrote the book, I ended up landing my dream job. My dream job fell into my lap in the most unexpected way. And I absolutely love it. It's, it's with uh, a website called what to watch, which is based in the UK and I'm part of the American team. So I'm covering all sorts of TV shows across all genres. And, um, am don't worry, I'm, I'm covering some passion flicks in there. I'm covering some Hallmark movies, um, but just all kinds of TV shows. And one of the TV shows, The Walking Dead, obviously, because you know that I love my Walking Dead and uh, want to continue covering the show. So I have some great Walking Dead content and some stuff from Comic-Con that I can I can share. And um, so yeah, so my job at What to Watch is absolutely amazing. And one of the shows that I'll be covering is Interview with a Vampire, which is coming October 2nd. So I have so much stuff to share with you about that. I'm over the moon excited about this new series. And uh, so the podcast this season is going to be a little bit different. I think it's going to be a little bit more varied. It's not just going to be books. It's going to be, I'm going to try and keep it a little more organized. Last time I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants. And um, that was just because there was a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. And I never knew when it was going to pop up. But I really want to keep some structure to it, so I'm going to try and do some kind of structure. I haven't figured that out yet, but we're going to figure it out together, and um, you know, so that I have a place that I can talk about TV and books and what I'm reading, what I've read, what's coming up, share interviews with authors, all of these amazing authors, and uh, and you know, possibly share some interviews with some of the TV personalities from. walking dead and interview with a vampire and all kinds of stuff. So there's a lot to look forward to. And I am so excited to have this platform and to be able to share these things with those of you who enjoy them as much as I do, because I absolutely get, I mean, my excitement is real when people, (laughs) when people meet me. Uh, I I met several people at Comic-Con who were kind of surprised that I I actually am exactly the way I am on the podcast in real life. Uh, I'm the same person on social media in real life. Like there's nothing I I met. Oh my God. We haven't even talked about passion con. That was a couple of months ago. And we will, I will do an episode dedicated to passion con, but that was one of my favorite comments was hearing people kind of surprised that I'm actually the same person. Like it's, it's not just a front it's, it's I, when I'm excited about something, you know, it, if I'm not excited about it, I'm probably not going to be talking about it because I don't really want to say anything mean. Negativity is not something that attracts me. Um, so yeah, so there's, there's just, there's so many, I love being able to share things with you and, uh, you know, using my platform as a journalist to be able to share those things with you and in a way that, is is fun and unique and be able to have really cool conversations with really cool people. So that brings me to my interview with Barbara Borland. And Barbara Borland, uh, again, her book, her new book is called The Force of Such Beauty. And uh, she's actually the author of two other books, I'll Eat When I'm Dead and Fake Like Me. And I have to say, you're you're going to hear a lot in this interview. And we cover everything from how she came up with the story, how she wrote the story, to some of the themes in the story. And in the themes of the story it's it's really it's a fascinating story of a woman named Caroline who's a former Olympic runner, and uh, she competed for South Africa, and uh, she ends up falling in love with this. Uh, this uh, quite unexpectedly, really. She never really saw love and marriage in her future until she fell in love with this guy who turns out to be the prince of a small country. And so it's got that, you know, there's there's very much this this hallmark, you know, falling in love with the prince kind of theme to it, except that as she goes on in this relationship, she starts to see that as you peel the layers back, it's more of a nightmare than a fairy tale dream, and uh, what Barbara said, you know, she'll you'll hear her talk about this. That it very much is a fairy tale, and I, you know, personally, I I I was as I read the book, I was thinking, you know, it it's like a metaphor, it's like a parable, it's it's. Um, you know, women so often find themselves in situations with, you know, they, they think that they are, um, you know, and, and it's true of everyone. I don't want to, I don't want to generalize and say it's just women, but since I'm, I'm a woman, I'm going to say it from my perspective, but you know, like you, you go into something and you look at it and you're like, okay, this is how it is. But then when you get in the middle of it, you're like, oh my God, this is nothing what I expected. And a lot of that comes out in this book where Caroline, you know, thinks that she's going into this situation that's, that's, it's, you know, who doesn't want to become a princess of a, of a small country. But what she realizes is that it's all trappings. It's all this nightmarish situation. And she has to figure out how to navigate this, this life. And so, um, one of the things that's really striking about this book and, uh, something that I, I feel very strongly about is that, when I think back to some of the great works of literature that I read in school, you know, particularly high school, some of the books, you know, in college, um, I think about books like Kate Chopin's, the awakening or Heinrich Ibsen's a dollhouse. And you think about these stories of these women doing, um, living these lives and, and, and they're, they're in these, they're, they're basically stuck in a rut, right? Like they're, they're doing what society expects of them. Until they decide they don't want to do that anymore, and it usually has some really dark consequences, and and that is exactly the kind of exploration that Barbara does in this book, and it's it's really fascinating to be set in a a royal family setting because there's obviously a real a real life parallel, and as she'll you'll hear her say in the book. It or in the interview, excuse me. It, it, one of the things that she that she says is that she wrote this book over a, a period of several years, so a lot of the things that come to mind hadn't even happened when she started writing the book, and and I'm am referring specifically to some of the things that happened with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle as they made their exit from uh, being part of the the working Royals, and uh, that escape. Which, you know, I I think we all look back and and, and those of us who who support Harry and Meghan will look at it and say she absolutely did make an escape and he made an escape and their lives are better for it. And then you look at the kind of the bubble of of the people still in the royal family, you know, doing their jobs and there's a darkness to it. Like there is absolutely this darkness to it. So not only do you have this this fairy tale story in in this book. But there's so many real life parallels that can be drawn to, you know, even, even getting married as your typical everyday woman and finding out that, you know, that being married and, and raising a family and, and all of those things that, that you're told as a child or what you're supposed to be doing aren't really what you want. Or, or maybe it's not the way you thought it would be, or, you know, there, there's a lot, there's so much to it. And the, 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 the story is so beautifully written, carefully constructed. The details are amazing. And you'll read this story, you know, and, and as I said, I, it reminds me of the awakening. It reminds me of a doll's house. Everyone should read this story. I, I think it should be a high school requirement because it's so much more relatable, I think in modern day, Life than The Awakening or A Doll's House. Um, You know, when I read those books, I I understood the gist of what they were trying to say, but I didn't relate to them because they were written in a different time for a different time, you know, time period uh, of women who lived in that time period. And so, uh, this book, I think, is is that that kind of answer. It's it's um, you know, it's it's a feminist anthem to, you know, what we're told to expect, you know, this life of, of being a princess or, you know, you know, you want to aspire to having this, this amazing life, but we're, we're trapped, you know, but sometimes women end up in these situations and they, they get trapped. It's, it's a, it's fascinating. If you haven't read the book, I highly recommend it. If you have read the book, this interview is going to change things. We don't spoil anything. So don't feel like you go into it and you go, you know, you're going to hear anything that spoils what it's about. You won't. We, do, we don't spoil it. But when you hear about how she came up with the story, it does kind of shift the way you view it. Um, and I think it, it works whether you've read the book or not. And um, But I really think that this is a book that that everyone should be reading. People should be talking about. It should be in book clubs. It should be... Um, it should be discussed among, you know, women's groups because it is, it's a fascinating story. And, you know, as someone having just written a romance novel, that's very much a happily ever after kind of story. I think that when I, when I think about it, I, I think that if I had read of The Force of Such Beauty when I was 18, and then I read it when I was 22, and then I read it when I was 30, and then I read it when I was, if I first read it when I was 35, or you know, read it now as I'm reading it now, I think it hits differently. It would hit differently depending on what period of my life I was in. Because the things that I thought were very important, and we talk about this in the interview, you'll hear me talking about a story of someone that I grew up with in elementary school. And the story is kind of important because when I think, Back to that moment, the idea that somebody could want that for their life and 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 to want it so early in their life blew my mind. And now I look back, you know, decades later, and I'm like, you know, there's a part of me that's like, you know, could I, you know, what could I, what could I give up if I could have the security and the what would I be willing to to do? to have the things that I I don't have in my life. And it's it it just it's a fascinating question. So, I'm going to turn this over to the interview because I think I've I've kind of set this up in a way that that makes sense and and I hopefully um forgive me for running on about this, but it's I'm just so excited about this book. I really recommend it to everybody who is looking for something. It's got a little bit of everything. Uh, you know, it's it's got the, the drama, the heat, the, the mystery, the intrigue. It's got a little bit of everything, and it's so beautifully written. I think everybody would enjoy this book. So without any further ado, here is my interview with author Barbara Borland about her new book, The Force of Such Beauty. I am so thrilled to have author Barbara Borland here to talk about her new book, Force of Such Beauty, which is one of the most exciting books I've read this summer, which is, I I read a lot, and this book is so refreshing and, and real and visceral, and, and I can't wait to get into this discussion. Barbara, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Sarah Beth, thank you so, so
1: much for having me. I, I'm such a fan, and I'm so happy to be here and talk to you. That's really such a compliment that you have liked it so much. Thank you.
0: You know, it's, it's, I, I want to get into kind of how it came about, and, um, Because I think my excitement is based on just how fresh and original the story is. I mean, I can't thank you enough for the, it it just, it, it's so real and so poignant. And I think it's, it's so, it speaks to so many things. I mean, there's so many different themes going on. So let's kind of start at the beginning. Like, where did the idea for this book come from?
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the force of such beauty is nominally a fairy tale, in that it is the story of a of a woman who marries a prince and becomes a princess. And fairy tales um, historically tend to be about governments. Folk tales are more your kind of magic bean department, You know, talking fish that turns into a house. They're kind of they're supernatural, but they tend to deal in in smaller relationships and um, and smaller stakes. Um, and fairy tales, by and large, deal with governments with very large structures of power and or money. And, um, when I, 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 certainly did not intend to try to write one ever in my life because it's such a, it's such a loaded, not just topic, but it's the words in fairy tales are really powerful. You know, there are these huge archetypes, not just prince, princess, king, queen, you know, hag, witch, villain, whatever, but sun, moon, stars, crystal. You know the the texture of fairy tales. They they tend to be really one dimensional. They almost have no interiority of the characters. We almost learn more about the place in a fairy tale. We learn where people, you know, so and so lives in the forest and the castle is over here. Uh, we get these dimensions of of nations almost out of fairy tales, and we sort of never see the inside. And yet, uh, for for me, I'm a I'm a, a woman cruising in on forty. Um, my childhood was filled with princess stuff, and it wasn't because my Um, parents were uh, going out of their way even to provide it. It just, it is so much in the ether. And if you um, have any friends who have kids, uh, I'm sure anyone who's hearing this can relate to it. It Doesn't really matter how hard you try to stop your kids from um, just becoming really stereotypically gendered. It just, it comes at them. There's so much marketing in the world and there's so much money being made off of kind of princess narratives. And princess stories are really all very similar. They are the story of a young woman who trades her reproductive future, control of her reproductive future in exchange for security from the state. She gets married. She is supposed to produce heirs in a government that requires women's bodies to create children in order to have stability. That is how they work. And so, um, yeah, I certainly did not ever think that I would try to write something like this. I would say probably Angela Carter, um, who, uh, wrote in the seventies and eighties just, I mean, takes the cake on the kind of most beautiful modern updates of fairy tales. But I, um, as I, uh, when I started writing this more than five years ago, um, I was really struck at how much gender roles had still maintained a part of my life. You know, how much they had just stayed with me in my whole life. And I don't, I feel, you know, I'm, i I was born in the body that is mine. I don't experience any gender dysphoria. I feel very um lucky and comfortable in the in the container that I'm in. but I still i think like a lot of people, we all think about our the sort of strictures of our gender all the time and um and the expectations of our sex too not just not just our gender but our sex and i um yeah, I started to i think when I started writing it, I was really um feeling so much uh, pressure to ha- kind of give up on my dreams and have a baby. I thought it was so interesting. It was like, it had sort of gone from like the whisper, a whisper on the wind in the parking lot of a target to like kind of every conversation I had with every person that I'd ever met. And um, yeah, so I, when I started writing it, at, at um, I was in a gallery in Paris with a friend of mine. Uh, she was pregnant with her first daughter. We were looking at all of these beautiful portraits of all these dead aristocrats who, you know, their whole life had just been about, um, about marrying the right guy. And and then I guess trying not to die in childbirth. And that was it. And it's, you know, i um, not, <laughs> that's still a huge part of women's lives. Of course, it's a huge part of women's lives. It's a huge part of the role that we play in humanity. You know, it is, um, but I think, um, yeah, I sort of, uh, because my generation, you know, we're of a generation where maybe our parents got to go to college, maybe our grandparents got to go to college, we've had a lot of access to what the Victorians would call a public life. Mm. And um, so, you know, us millennials were sort of raised with this, you can do anything, you can be anything attitude. And then you sort of kind of get older and you think, actually, wait, maybe I'm still really bound to these um, to these historic roles. So. So that is a very, very long answer to your question.
0: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I it, it was such, you, you spoke so eloquently of, of so many, so many things that, that just jump out without even, without even thinking about the story being a fairy tale. You see, like, there, there's so many things that, that come, that you just explained without even like, thinking. <laughs> you're going to see it in a whole new light if you haven't read it yet. If you have read the book and you're listening to this podcast, you're going to, I think that, that listeners are going to hear and see it in a whole new, in a whole new way from how they might've read it initially. But to hear that you read, that you wrote this book five years ago. um, I started writing it five years ago. It took, it just took a
1: long time to smooth out. It just, like I said, these words, these fairy tale words, these stereotypes, these archetypes, they're so powerful and they do so Mm -hmm. much. And making it feel uh to the reader the way that you felt that it is new that it is fresh
0: um took a lot of it just took a lot of doing. so well, and it, you, it's such a it's such a uh for the 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 way that the story you know it's it's hard to it's hard to say that you know it's a it's a beautiful story because it's so tragic it's a beautifully tragic story that i think you know bears so many real life parallels and, but to think that, that you went on this journey five years ago and to think of where we are right now and to think, yeah. of you know, <laughs> where we're going and, and, you know, you take two steps forward and, and you get knocked back five steps, you know, yeah. every yeah. day. Yeah. And, you know, so it, it's funny. So I just, I just, I uh, just had a birthday a couple of weeks ago. I just turned 42. So I'm at the happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm at the kind of uh, I'm actually in that weird that weird space between Gen X and millennial. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm exactly in the middle. You're the cusp. <laughs> I'm the cusp. And so I, so I kind of, I I like to think I'm like a rising millennial, you know, I'm, I'm more millennial than I am <laughs> Gen X in a lot of ways, but then it's, it's like right there. And I think, yeah. you know, when I was growing up and I, it just, when I finished your book, I was thinking of this story so much. And I thought this is, it's so strange that this is the story that came to me, but When I was in sixth grade, when we had our graduation, they picked a bunch of us to speak at graduation. So I'm sitting there talking about, you know, I wanted to work at NASA and I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted, I didn't know, I couldn't do math back then. So that kind of derailed my plans to become an astrophysicist. But yeah, plus, yeah, the glasses, you can't be an astronaut with glasses. Yeah. So there were, there were so many things kind of, you know, piled against me, but I was, I was dreaming at that point. I mean, that was, that what I do. And there was this this other girl in my class named Julie. And she got up and she said that she couldn't wait to grow up because she wanted to become a mom and she wanted to have a bunch of children and she wanted to be a housewife and she wanted to be the best wife she possibly could. And this was like early 90s. Yeah, this was her She and, dreamed that. That was she did that with her imagination. Yeah. And I remember sitting there talking to friends of mine. And we were like and we would look at each other, you know, and we're like 12. And we're looking yeah. at each other at 12, going, that's where she wants to be yeah i mean it, like yeah. in our minds we we're like but well, wait because you know as you said like we were there there's a whole generation of us who are taught you can do anything you can be anything you can accomplish yeah. anything and so to think that was what her aspiration was was interesting and it always kind of stayed with me because you know there's nothing there's absolutely nothing wrong with it but it's so interesting No, it's a
1: really meaningful thing to do with your life but it's not um it's, it's uh, when you're a 12 year old girl, there's a lot of other stuff you can dream about doing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. That's, and so that's what was so striking to me. And so as I was reading your book and, you know, and, and, and thinking about, you know, Caroline, the main character who's had this incredible Olympic journey and, and you know, has suffered injuries and has gone through, you know, this, this complete transformation to become this princess in a state, you know, I, I kept thinking, you know, a, a gilded cage is still a cage but for so many of us, you know, even, even if you're not in, even if you're not a member of a royal family, sometimes all of those pressures that we have as, as women and, you know, as, as people expected to have children, like it, it can feel like you're in, you know, like I I started thinking like, it it reminded me of where she was, you know, like she was saying, Oh yeah, Yeah. like I want to do this. And I was like, but I feel like I would be trapped. And then now that yeah. I'm older, I look back and I'm like, there's so many different ways to interpret yeah. the way that you see it.
1: Yeah, I, um, I'm i going to read something out to you. I'm so glad that you said that because I'm going to bring this up to you. This is, I put this into a piece that I wrote for Ms. that um, is not out yet, but it will be out soon. But I, um, you know, the, the thing about monarchies is that uh, we have monarchies everywhere in America. They're everywhere. It's the structure of the family. It's mm-hmm. as simple as having a breadwinner and a dependent so political power in the United States like mothers don't have political power, I think a lot of mothers are feeling that way right now they don't know how to keep their kids safe. They do not know how to keep themselves safe, they don't have childcare, they don't have health care. Uh, they can't um, have a safe miscarriage you know there's so many things every woman in America, I think, is really feeling like we've been thrown to the dogs here because the political unit that has really historically had primacy as a chit in our discourse has been that of the family. Align yourself to a man, make yourself valuable to a valuable person, and they'll take care of you. And you're supposed to get your care from that family. We're not entitled to expect it from the government. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think a lot of us would very happily imagine a society in which the way in which we had children, the way in which we raised our children was communal, uh, had all kinds of you know interdependencies built in that allowed us to care for each other and to feel safe with each other and that's just that's just not the society we live in but in 1972 sorry i'm just going to pull it up because i want to get it right um phyllis shaffley uh who is a she's an agitator basically she uh, she worked to uh, stop the passage of the equal rights amendment that was her great life goal was to make sure that women were not considered Considered equal to men. And she wrote this stump speech that she marched around the country in 1972 again and again and again um, called What's Wrong with Equal Rights for Women. And I'm just going to read a passage from it. Oh, yeah. That is, it's 50 years old and it is chillingly accurate as to what the. uh, I'm so sorry, my Wi Fi is not cooperating. I have it on my computer, but it's just faster to Google it. So, uh, Shafley's argument against equality uh, was basically very very simple that the family was uh, the the most meaningful form of employment that women could find. Um, so the line I'm looking for, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry it's a it's a long speech. I um <laughs> uh, oh my gosh, sorry, this whole thing is so long. Oh, no, um, no problem. Ah, okay, so it's this. She argues that children are a woman children are a woman's best social security. Her best guarantee of social benefits such as old age pension, unemployment compensation, workman's comp- compensation and sick leave. The family gives a woman the physical, financial and emotional security of the home for all her life. And that was an argument in 1972 against equality and it's an argument that still feels really true. I think most women feel certainly the government isn't providing us with meaningful social security. It's not providing us with meaningful support. And so, um yeah, the uh, the feeling of if you want to have a baby, maybe the most financially prudent thing for you to do is to sit at home while your partner goes out and works. I mean, that puts you in a monarchy that puts you in a place where you are totally dependent on that other person um, and you don't see the outside world and you don't have contact with the outside world. They get to maintain a life. They get to maintain an adult life. And you're sitting there. You're sitting there with your baby. And it's just the two of you. Mm-hmm. And that's not a structural way to keep adult women sane. It's just not. And so, um, yeah, I, um, uh, it's yeah. I thought, I just, I just, it's, I've thought about it so much <laughs> because, um, having watched, uh, my husband and I have been married for 10 years and, um, we, uh, we, we don't have kids. It hasn't happened for us, but so many of our friends, um, have, you know, I watched how much they have to give up and it's always, it's always women. It's always my women friends. It really is. It's just what I see. And I wish I had uh, better. Um, data to report, but that is, that is the fact of it. And I, um, I really, I really wish that uh, the sort of bill of goods that you and I were sold as young people about our modern lives had a little more truth to it. But I think that we have to, you know, we can't, it's really hard to change your mind. It's hard and it's hard to change sort of the shape of society, right? Like we can, we can wake up and tell ourselves whatever we want, but um, we live in a world that all of its values have, they, they were here before we got here um, and figuring out how to unlearn the things that have been really in the ether, the thing that makes a little tomboy pick up that frozen dress, you know, at the store and just the way your friends, kids, their eyes just go, you know, this little plastic blue dresses. (laughs) What is that? What is that? That's in our bones. And I, um, yeah, I really wanted to come at it with empathy in this book. So that is what I did.
0: You know, one of the things that that really stands out, you know, and thinking about what you just said about, you know, how the the, the trappings of, you know, society and how, you know, that's, it's typically the women who are affected the most, you know, you can't, you can't read your book without thinking about the monarchies that were, you know, because as you say, there's monarchies everywhere but certain ones will jump yeah. out more than others. and Well, you know, sure, it, yeah, there's still, re- there's real <laughs> government monarchies, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, there's certain stories, you know, like, there, there are fewer, you know, at least in, in, in modern memory, there are fewer happy endings in these, you know, these fairy tale royal weddings. And I think we're seeing one play out right now when you see, you know, what's going on with the the British monarchy with, um, you know, you have two brothers who, you know, one's going to be the king. The other one's not going to be the king. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to project my own emotions on it, but you can almost see the weight of responsibility. That's just bringing him, his family, you know, you can see it in, you know, when you look at, when you look at it, Will and Kate, as opposed to, um, you know, Harry and Megan, like they're living completely different lives, but they're yeah. still bound to these structures and these structures are so archaic that they don't allow for the change that probably needs to happen, definitely needs to happen, really, if this is going to keep going. I mean, you can't hold people to the same things that were being held to 200 years ago. Just doesn't. Yeah, I mean, who? yeah, what would what would happen, right? Modernity is so
1: complicated. You know, William and Kate went to St. Andrews, which is a really well-respected university. They're pretty they're far more educated than their parents were. Mm-hmm. um <clears throat> you know their parents all went or her parents i think actually probably are pretty well educated but his parents you know went to these his mother just had a tutor and so she's very educated in terms of the british government but like mm-hmm. you know they sat in like liberal arts tutorial and like had to think about how the world is now and you know, if either of them were to say, hey, monarchy is an anachronism that we don't need anymore. And this is not a functional democracy. And this perpetuates a hierarchy in this country that we don't need. You know, I mean, I think they just, the monarchy itself just keeps moving right over them. You know, you cut off the head of the snake and another one grows right back. I don't know that it serves them personally to, Mm -hmm. um, of course, it doesn't serve them personally to uh, get out of the way, which obviously, as we've seen with Harry and Meghan, uh, the amount of abuse that that woman has had to put up with is crazy. And I think she is so, so, so brave. Yeah. I was so impressed that they, that she did this and she took him with her and she still gets to have her relationship and she gets to have her family. I am, I am beyond impressed with her. I just, I thought that was, and I was really shocked when she got engaged to him because, you know, she also is really well-educated yeah. and, um, and played a lawyer on television. Like that's not, you right. know, she wasn't on a soap opera. Um, she, she was like a, an adult woman with a whole full life, um, and she still went into this thinking maybe she would be the exception to the rule. You know that maybe for her it wouldn't be so bad. And then she got there, and it was screamingly, screamingly bad. And um, yeah, I'm not sure how. I, I mean, who does monarchy serve? Uh, it seems like to me that it serves aristocrats. Like it serves the people just like a tier or two down, kind of middle management. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got somebody to point your slings and arrows at, but you don't really have to take the fall yeah but, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's up to British people if they want this or not. that's their choice. but, uh, in America, we don't have to keep choosing it
0: like we can we can choose a sophisticated democracy that's available to us, right, right. but even as you know, at its core, because, as you say, so many of us were raised with these you know these ideas of you know not that we're all going to become princesses, but, you know, as, as young girls, you're taught, you know, you'll find the man of your dreams. You're going to have this dream. family. Yeah. And the whole concept of happily ever after that we use in, in conversation and in modern conversation, and, you know, it, it stems yeah. from fairy tales. I mean, that's the whole point that yeah. this is. Yeah. And the story it, ends when you get married. Yeah. Yeah. And that's in and your room yeah. that this is, you know, you're being groomed to think that this is what you're supposed to do. So when I look at my friend, Julie, and I'm thinking, you know, at 12 years old, she's thinking, she's already thinking that. And and that yeah. was the last thing. I mean, I, you know, I was the kind of kid who was out playing. You know, I gave up gymnastics to go play baseball. Like I wanted to, to be that kid. But yeah. I also liked my Disney princesses. And I liked, you know, I, I liked it all. I wanted, I wanted yeah. everything. I didn't want to limit myself. And the idea of getting married was just such a, I mean, that to me, like even at 12, I was like, man, that, that would be like the end. Like that's the end. Yeah. Yeah. That's the end of when that's when you stop having all of your dreams and then you just get married and have kids. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then your
1: life is over. Yeah. Yeah. It really, yeah, as young women, it seemed really unappealing, you know, by the time I actually got married, my husband that I married is, um, he's so lovely and smart and funny and odd, and we're just such a good match for each other. And I I went through the, the process of having a wedding, um, thinking that the uh, symbols actually weren't that important or that they didn't mean that much to us. And I was astonished to find out how powerful they were. I, every step of the way, I was like, whoa, you know, everything from sales girls asking me in the dress store, if I wanted to try on tiaras and they weren't kidding. They really were asking me that. And I was like, ha ha. And then, you know, you sit there for five hours trying on dresses and you watch these so many other brides with their, just kind of immobilize themselves. They were bigger and bigger, the dress, the Mm. taller and taller, the shoe, and they're all trying on tiaras just screaming in joy. And I just, could you know, I was like, oh, this is real. And, um, and once, we, um, once we actually got married, I discovered that like people, I found people liked me more, which I found really, really alarming. <laughs> um, I was, but I, you know, I was like kind of a chaotic young woman. And so once I was married, I think I seemed less um, socially destabilizing. And um, I assume that's what it is. Or it's just you fit in. People know where to put you. And I right. just hadn't, I didn't, I had underestimated the power of it until I went through it as an experience. And I had underestimated that transformation, that moment when we said, not just I do, I mean, for us, the wedding part was we made all these promises that we meant so deeply and that was so meaningful. But the, the day after that happens, the way in which other people talk to me about my relationship and my body just completely changed. It's been a solid decade of people asking my husband what his job is and asking me if I have a baby. And then yeah. if I say no, then they're like, oh, why not? And then it's a whole, you know, and it doesn't matter what I say, because people, especially people who are married, who have been through any kind of infertility, they really wanna talk about it. Mm-hmm. And they just, they'll just jump in. You know, it just like, it's a whole, it's a lot of stuff, it's a lot of stuff. And I just, it's sh- I went from being a person to suddenly being someone's reproductive asset and I was so surprised and I know it's dumb but I really was like wow
0: yeah but but see it's so interesting because it's you when you're there's that pattern you know and we're I think I would like to think that we're moving away from that but for so long it was you know the first thing you did I mean I, I know I have friends whose parents were high school sweethearts and so they got married as soon as they got out yeah. of high school. And so they had, sure. you know, their parents are very young, or, you know, they had them when they were very young or had kids. Yeah. Married. Yeah. Like my parents didn't have kids until they were, or you know, I they were married seven years before they had kids. You know, and they got married. Yeah, same. Same. And it and they so they waited. And but you know, thinking about, I think you hit something so, so important and so poignant by saying, you know, like they didn't know what to do with you until you were married. Because that's, you know, traditionally <laughs> it's yeah. you College was even kind of, you know, there was a certain point where college wasn't always the question that was asked. It was, you know, you'd go high school, like, okay, well, when are you gonna get married? When are you gonna settle down? Then it was like, okay, well, when you're done with college, when are you yeah. gonna get married? And then it's not until yeah. you get married that it becomes like, you know, okay, yeah. well now you you have now done that. So now we know yeah. what the next the the next acceptable question is. Yeah. Is, yeah. You know, are you going to have kids, or you know, when are you having? It's not even are you going to. It's when are you having kids? When? Yeah. And if your answer doesn't fit into the bubble, because my answer was always like, I'm really not interested in having kids. Like, I really have no interest yeah. in having kids. And it was like, oh, you'll change your mind later. Like, you'll change. You'll change your like, mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I was I've like, no, I, I really don't think that that's gonna happen. Like, <laughs> I can tell you right yeah. now, I'm not. I'm not that person. And uh, you know, it, it's so interesting to me that. You know that that when you when you look at the characters you've built in this world your main character caroline isn't isn't necessarily the, the cut from that same fabric i mean she probably no it's just a structural problem <laughs> yeah yeah and, and she doesn't <laughs> yeah strike me as like you know the the, the little the girl who, who was you know who spent her childhood dreaming up her wedding and You know, even getting married.
1: No, no, no. She uh yeah, for readers who haven't read the book yet, Caroline, the protagonist of this novel, is a is a retired Olympic athlete. And uh athletes have it have it really tough. That's a short career. And it it just it's really, you know, she's a runner. Um, I don't know if any of you listening have followed any of the um Salazar team stuff out of Oregon, but women runners are not treated well. They are really they're asked to keep the weight off. Uh, that's really bad for your bones it is just not a good solution to long-term health it's really tough to be an olympic athlete and your career will end and then who are you and and what happens to you and if you weren't fortunate enough to be educated the whole time which would be really really expensive you'd have to have a private tutor it's really hard it's hard it's a huge commitment to do something like that
0: and again um, it's yeah especially it's, so for women that's another especially thing. so
1: for women yeah yeah and the um you know there are these huge for caroline when she she meets a man she falls in love and the uh structure that's offered to her is have a baby and be a wife and all of her security is framed around that question and i think for uh for us uh kind of more regular everyday people it's i've been thinking a lot about the ways in which um our reproductive secure our security and our reproductive health are Kind of constantly being sort of laced up around us, you know. I when the um, when the SCOTUS decision on Roe came through, the first person that I called was my mother, and we both had this memory of um, I don't know why it came up right away, but I just had this memory of for uh, the years that I when I started taking birth control as a young woman, I took the pill, and I could only get it. They changed the law since then, but at the time you could only get it for three months at a time and you had to have a paper prescription from a doctor so you had to go to a doctor and get an appointment and then you had to take your paper prescription to a pharmacy which is a huge barrier to access it was so inconvenient and i remember saying this to my mother and my mother said oh it was always true like that true for me and she said and i was married you know and it was so funny like both of us and i was like oh yeah both of us thought like you know, maybe even married women they you'd let them have the pill just when they needed it and that just wasn't the case we're constantly mm-hmm. on this edge <laughs> this like knife's edge of um of not being able to really confidently control our reproductive futures and for women that is really 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 difficult it just makes your life super complicated to not be able to know um with certainty that you'll spend, you know, the next year, not pregnant that, or the next four years, if it's college or the next nine years, if it's graduate school. Um, And the threat, especially of stuff like graduate school is like, well, if you wait till it's over, then it'll never happen. And the, it just, it's this constant thing. I, I feel like we're, you know, we we're raised with all of these attitudes that come out of societies that are thousands of years old. We didn't, we didn't build this world. We were just born into it. Um, but we can certainly have more effective kind of small bore stuff, like being able to get the pill over the counter <laughs> or, you know, you can get plan B, you've been able to get plan B over the counter. Maybe you can't anymore. Maybe they just changed that, but you could for like the last decade. Right. I think you could just yeah, buy I still it can, yeah. and yeah. And that was, you definitely could not do that when I, um, first started taking contraception no way you had to and you couldn't get it from a nurse you I think you could only get it from Planned Parenthood or your doctor but I you know like I wasn't gonna go to my family doctor you know there's just so many all these little kind of like bumpers that like stop us from from feeling like um the way men do Mm -hmm. (laughs) honestly yeah and I yeah so that um Caroline in the novel she has a she has a structural problem Mm-hmm. And that is what leads her to choose the life that she does, and she's also in love. But you know, young people fall in love. That's what they do. That's what happens when you're. She's twenty four in the book, and that happens. I think she's young.
0: So, and it, it, it's this. Like I said, the the decision for her to decide. You know, when she decides to get married is such an interesting. It's an interesting thing because she is so independent. You would almost think that she would never think of marriage in the first place, and then yeah. It, you know, when love hits her, it hits her hard. And yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit about Finn, who is our the mm-hmm. lead male in this uh this story. Who he's he's a little complicated. He's a little complicated because he starts out, and then he goes through the story. And there's there's <laughs> different levels. I mean, it's yeah, it, you know, it's perfect. This. It, the the other story that came to mind. The, the, I think I, I think as you read this book, you know, for for those of you listening, I think as you read this book, you're going to think of things and and think of personal stories that, because again, it it is, it's very it's it's very much a fairy tale, but there's so many real life parallels. You know, there there's so many women who fall in love. They fall fast in love. People in general fall fast in love. When you're in love, you're in yeah. love. You can't stop. You're it's, it's a yeah. great train. You can't stop it. And sometimes that leads to decisions that probably shouldn't have been made in the first place. And, and you don't realize <laughs> yeah. it until after you're, you know, after you're married and, um, you know, Las Vegas weddings come to mind to yeah, you know, like, oh yeah, let's get married. <laughs> yeah. And then two days later, you're like, what the hell was I thinking? Like, well, you know, this was a huge mistake, but I had a friend in college who was, uh, she was getting her master's degree and she was planning her wedding at the same time. Mm -hmm. And she was marrying the love of her life. And he was also in school the day they got married or the day after they got married. He said, okay, here's, what's going to happen. I'm going to, I'm going to go to school full-time. You're going to need to get a job full-time while you're going to school. Also getting a master's because I can't go to school. I can't work while I'm in school. And he'd like literally laid it out the day after their wedding. She had no idea. She had zero idea. This was coming no plant like and it was really fascinating because she came from old money and he came from new money so watching this play out because he had no thought that there was anything wrong with what he'd said right and their marriage was over in a year sure yeah but it was one of those things where it was you know you it, it's like buying a buying a lemon you know you go to the, you get yeah. a garlot and you get a lemon and you're like is looked good at the beginning and everything was great <laughs> until, yeah. you know, the wheels fell off and you're like, okay, well, <laughs> this was a bad idea. And, and, and I kept thinking about Caroline's going through that process of, you know, thinking yeah. that it was going to be one way and it turning out to be another, but the character of Finn is so interesting because he, it, it, the way he goes through the story is very interesting and very telling of this this structure and this this government or governmental structure that you're talking about that he's a product of that. Mm-hmm. So he's from that's the world he's from and he seems to work through it pretty I mean he's he's pretty skilled at, at using everything it is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he I mean hey, you know, I think masculinity is its own prison. What a, what a tough um I I like i I said about prince william you know i think um it if you express yourself when you're the person who's an heir to a throne it's really you're just asking for trouble um you're a collaborator you have no other choice you are in it and uh, you don't have a life that belongs to yourself and you can tell yourself that that has a deeper moral value all you want and everyone else will tell you that that is certainly the idea of a monarchy that they're these perfect beings bestowed to you know given to us by god that we can look at as an example and if you believe that about yourself that is a really complex (laughs) self-belief and i and that is a that that is a you are on that freight train and you are taking everybody with you and so yeah when they fall in love like it's you know all the things that he. Kind of says to her about baby, I'm going to take care of you. I mean, that's also an argument for an authoritarian government. It's the same. It's one and done. Same thing. And um, yeah, it's you know, I think probably in the last ten years, I think most women, uh, in American women who kind of pay attention to contemporary culture, have certainly like got the memo that all of our early rom coms that we were all taught to love are all about like stalking. They're all about stalking. It's just like he stalks you (laughs) until you give up. Um, but the uh but baby I'm gonna take care of you is also like I'm a dictator, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I think you know we are in a democracy is really hard to believe in, it's really hard to trust, and we have seen so much cynicism in democracy, um not of course, of course, in America. we saw a lot of cynicism about democracy over the last several years. Um, but uh, Caroline is from a similar country. She's from South Africa, which is another young democracy that has, uh, shares a lot of sins with the United States and also shares a lot of optimism with the United States and shares some cynicism as well over what to do with this new democracy and how successful is it gonna be. But we, you know, we saw, we've seen a lot of cynicism in Russia over the last 20 years is a very obvious example. Eastern Europe, in Hungary, they've just given up. They've just gone full authoritarianism. And I think that that is really dangerous. (laughs) I think that, you know, I'm going to take care of you. I'm the one who knows what's right. I don't know that that's how we want to be governing our lives in general, whether it's in our home or in our communities. Um, I think we want to have a more involved um, kind of mutual understanding of a diverse group of needs, uh, what you might
0: call utilitarianism. So, yeah, yeah. And it, it, the juxtaposition of, of Caroline and Finn are, is so interesting because you know he, he grew up in the system, so he's, it's really hard for anyone who grew up in a system to see it the way an outsider would, because yeah. it's just the way that it is. And at the same time, you know it, there's these I think the, the the outliers in these situations are the the men, kind of like Prince Harry who can look at his wife and look at his wife's struggles and say, okay, this is I need to do this to make my wife to help my wife. I need to yeah. be the support system. I need to affect change or else I'm going to, you know, either lose my relationship or lose the mother of my children or lose you know that it's it's really hard because of the structures. You know, like you say, I mean, yeah. So he a, Prince he Harry. Is, yeah. And, and, I mean
1: Prince Harry is, I was just gonna say he's living in the present moment. So, he and he's almost in the same position that a mother is in, right? Mm -hmm. He stopped just being potential. Mm -hmm. He has ceased to be potential. His potential is irrelevant. He is only a person who lives and feels and breathes. (laughs) And he looks at his wife who he loves and his children who he loves. Or at the time I think she was pregnant when Mm -hmm. they, maybe I don't remember if she'd given birth or not, but he, you know, and thinks, how do I live? What a miracle it is to be a living, breathing human being. How can I make each day its best? And that, you know, that is that is where mothers are. Mothers are no longer objects of potential. They mm-hmm. have fulfilled their potential. They're on the other side. And um yeah, I think they become the outsiders. They're the ones who to, no one has any use for them anymore. And suddenly you can see it all so clearly. You're like, wait, did I only matter insofar as I have this one use? And then if I don't fulfill, wait, oh, I guess I am irrelevant now that I've done it. And um yeah i think um i think there's something really powerful in that and uh yeah caroline's husband in the book has a has a mix of empathy and duty and you know I i won't say any more about it but i think uh i think it is important to see ourselves as part of a now that is complicated instead of part of an inevitable chain of events that we have no control over
0: right right And that's, you know, when you, when you hear women and, 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 you know, even Caroline in the book, you know, like she's trying to be heard, she's trying to be seen and, and to have, you know, so many women don't feel like anyone's seen, seeing them, seeing what they're going through or hearing them. And, you know, and and again, a really great parallel is, you know, Megan trying to tell people, you know, like, Hey, I'm struggling. And then to have nothing happen. And it happened for Harry too, you know, to learn that it happened to him also is, is very scary, but I had to, I I was thinking about, uh, because this just happened at Wimbledon with, um, with uh, Kate and Prince George, you know, where everybody was like, you know, Prince George was really hot and he was in the Royal box and you have this little kid and he's in this suit and it's, I don't know how hot, you know, it's 90 something degrees. and, And everybody's like, you know, it's, it's a real, it's really unfortunate to see that you have a kid who has to, you know, because the Royal box has a dress code that he yeah. has to conform to that, you know, and, and yeah, you have to make this little boy suffer. Yeah. And instead of, you know, it, it I, I think it was it. within the system that's in place. I think that they tried to do as much as they could, but that's one of those moments where you could, I, I stop and I think, you know, how would Diana have handled this? What would Megan have done? Would she have gone with the system, gone with, you know, the way it's been? I would would have left. It's a tennis game. I would have picked him up and walked. Come on. And that's, you know, again, you know, in reading about the way, you know, when Caroline has an expectation of having kids and then, you know, it fitting into that, into that box, the way that things are, you know, once you become a mother, I mean, then it becomes, you know, this is what you have to do. And then this is the next step. And, and, and so I just kept seeing all of these parallels that just, you know, it's not, you don't have to be a princess to understand it. You just have to be a woman living in today's society (laughs) and you'll see it all over the place.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Once you see it, it's really hard to unsee it and it makes it, yeah. It makes it really frustrating to go about your life. I guess I'm just, yeah, with this novel, I, um, I, I hope that the readers, we've been talking so much about our own personal feelings and I've been talking so much about my own personal feelings and writing this book. And I, um, uh, that is because I'm sort of just jumping to the conclusion that you, of course, Sarah Beth, understand, and a lot of readers understand that novelists we put our feelings into our books. It is, it comes out of something that feels so deep to you that you are trying to explore and you are trying to build out. But this book is it is a very built world. It is I, I had such um, I put so much effort into really trying to make it for the reader, and so I hope I'm not making anyone feel like they're just going to sit down and listen to a bunch of personal opinions, because it's, um, it really is a narrative, because I want to, I think these feelings, we all have these feelings and, Mm -hmm. you know, like internalized misogyny would have us kind of belittle these feelings um, or make fun of them. And, uh, you know, like laughing at Melania Trump, who is not a good person. Like she's obviously been incredibly bad person, but she's still a person. And something has led her to believe all of the things that she believes about the world. And I am really curious about the forces that shape us. And I hope that this book has some catharsis in it for some of these greater things that are around
0: us all the time, these these models that have been put in front of us. Um, yeah. Well, as modern day fairy tales go, I think this one is one that uh, I, I think every every woman should read and everyone will take away from from they will take away from it what they will whether they see stories that they've heard from their mother or aunt or grandmother there's so many there's so many ways to relate to the story and to understand the character you know it's not we're not in the happily ever after era anymore I think we're in the the post happily ever after era' which
1: yeah, isn't we that you still-
0: can't have it you can't have it but you can it's just not it's not the same.
1: We are sent we're fully formed sentient beings. We've left our homes, we've entered public life, we've entered the world. And I think that, you know, um we we don't want to we don't want to go back. And I uh, fairy tales are they ask us to go back. Um and this is a this fairy tale um it is just like every other fairy tale. It is a narrative about state control over women's bodies. It is no different in that regard. But because it is interior, because we finally see something from inside her perspective, it's not third person sleeping beauty looks so beautiful as she laid there comatose, you know, it is, we see the inside of a person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think these stories are, they are warnings. They're meant to be warnings. And because they get passed down, uh, they were passed down orally, and then they're, you know, passed down in so many different printed versions um, since the invention of the printing press uh they lose the the voice of the person at the middle of it um but this one this is her voice and this is her narrative so I hope your readers like spending time with her (laughs) I'm so (laughs) pleased that you did it so it's so it's such a gift to be read so carefully I really appreciate it
0: well thank you for writing such an amazing story and and um the 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 odd serendipity that it's being released now is just yeah and, and I, I don't say that lightly and I, and I don't say it in yeah. jest. it's just, it's, it's amazing to think that the story's been in development as long as it has been and that all of these things have happened. Everything we've talked about, you know, has happened over that span of time. I mean, it, it just, it's amazing and it really makes you stop and think. And those are the types of books that I think are the best or the ones that make you think and make you reflect and make you, you know, that are they're entertaining in the sense that they're a book that takes you somewhere else, but they also stop and make you think, you know, make you stop and think about what, what's going on, what you can do better, and, you know, how you might be able to, to change your language, even if it's something as simple as not asking the next single woman you see when she's, you know, when <laughs> she's her getting baby? married, where's her <laughs> Where are you getting things?
1: married? How old do you yeah. want to be when you get married? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, it's just, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's all of those things, so, so, congratulations! Yeah. I mean, honestly, congratulations on on the release. And um, do you have anything in the? Are you now that it's out in the world? Are you are you working on anything um, coming up?
1: Oh yeah, well, I'm working on my next book, but I've been working on that since July of 2020. I do these really kind of slow leapfroggy things, and the next one is about a lonely clairvoyant who can hear other people's thoughts, which I realize sounds crazy it is it's slightly crazy but i think it's pretty fun um i'm staying with my same publisher and my same editor at dutton and i love them so much and i'm so happy to be working with them again and um yeah so that is uh right now man yeah the book came out yesterday it's been a wild 24 hours um and it's been such a pleasure this is a book that i uh i don't know in writing it i found it sort of hard to conceptualize for other people and i think I don't know. I wasn't. I just wasn't sure how like the people in my own life would feel about it, even though they are my first audience. But it's been. It has been such so awesome to watch. Just the message is pouring. All of my friends is cracking it open and reading it in the same time period. I like the feeling of that. The joy that that gives me to be able to share something like this with my people is such a big deal. So yeah, I have. um I push my events to the fall because of COVID travel. I. I, I found it sort of complicated to figure anything out, um, but yeah, I'm doing, and I'm, I'm sort of writing this uh, COVID publishing, the very end of the wave here, I'm still being able to do so many things over Zoom, so yeah, no, I have a lot, I have a, I have to be on the computer a lot over the next couple of weeks, but uh, yeah, no, I just, yeah, it's, um, yeah, thank you, thank you so much for having me on, It's really nice to have the chance to speak for the book, I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. And and I can't wait to talk to you about your next book. And just congratulations with all of this. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I can't say enough about this book. So please go out and get a copy of it. And thank you so much for listening if you've made it this far. And uh, as again, as a reminder, I would just uh, like to say, you know, if you like what we're doing on the podcast, please make sure that you subscribe, talk about it, uh, like it, review it all of those things, it all helps to help me build a better podcast for you. So thank you so much for your support and I will talk with you soon. Thank you again.